This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, the journalist, author, and academic Gary Young joins me to talk about race, identity, and education. Our conversation starts with his reflections on the UK government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, which released its report in March. We then touch on a range of issues from across his career. Gary Young is a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. He worked for the Guardian newspaper for two decades and has written five books. His book, Who Are We and Should It Matter in the 21st Century, was recently re-released with an updated introduction. In May, he released his latest BBC radio documentary called Thinking in Color. Gary Young, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having me. So can you explain to our non-UK audience listening today, can you explain what the Suell Report is, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities that was headed by Tony Sewell? Well, yes. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest, um, a relatively newly elected, very conservative government kind of ushered in, in no small part, on a Brexit wave, um, uh, which I would call not the most progressive wave, uh, felt under, uh, under some pressure to respond in some way. And their <laughs> the most predictable and least productive way to respond to anything is to, um, is to commission a report. Um, <laughs> You know, there are no end of reports into racism in Britain, which is one of the things people said was like, you don't need to actually, you could just respond to the 10 or 11 reports that have been issued about inequalities in race and criminal justice and so on and so forth. Um, if you actually wanted to do something, but instead they commissioned a new report uh, by uh, pers- uh, headed by a person called Tony Sewell. This was already too many problematic because Tony Sewell has a history of saying or writing things that at one or or another time, he used to have a column in a black newspaper here of being uh, sexist or homophobic and of having um, a very particular, quite conservative with a small c, um, take on black life, which was very kind of, um, you know, all about victim culture and kind of, you know, black boys misbehaving and being feminized and um, uh, by single mothers and kind of um, a kind of notion of um, sort of bootstrap cultural politics, you know, or in this case, not do your bootstraps up, but pull your pants up, young man, and kind of, you know, get to it. So it's very individualized. Very individualized and not Uh, and um, revolving around that the problem is our culture, not the system, not an institution. Let's let's not claim victimhood, all of that kind of stuff. It's it's kind of globally known route to take with uh, minority black culture, Um, which didn't chime with, I mean, certainly there's an audience for that within uh, black community, but didn't chime with most of the voices that we hear who talk about race and most of the studies that there are about race. So already there was a kind of discounting 
um, of mm. what this would do. And the notion that, well, if you really cared about this issue, you'd have got someone who most black people would have some kind of kind of confidence in. And this isn't the person. <laughs> this isn't the person. That was a common view. And there were a lot of... Um, a lot was said in that regard. The report then came out, and I would say was in some ways predictable. It was um, it was precisely what the government wanted. Um, so they commissioned a report that they wanted. You know, it's like marking your own homework, really. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it said, you know, um, there is racism because they could not say that. There is a problem, but. They denied the fact that it was systemic and said, well, institutionalised. Sometimes people say that and sometimes people don't, but they don't really know what they mean by it. And and then really took a lot of effort to try and make things complicated where they, where they either weren't or where people had raised those complications many times before. So... Well, African kids do better than Caribbean kids in school. So how can we say that school, you know, that there's institutional racism in education and people, you know, there's been a lot of work on that. And the fact that, well, it's a different pattern of migration. Um, uh, nobody's saying that African and Caribbean kids are the same. Race isn't just about colour. Nobody's mm. saying it's not complicated, you know. Indian and Bangladeshi kids, he didn't mention them so much, but um, they do very, very differently. Actually, the difference between Indian and Bangladeshi kids is even more different. And so it's kind of like, well, you people look the same. So one, you know, so it can't be racism, which of course is daft. And one would only have to look at America and the notion that uh, children who are black from Caribbean or African migrant background do fare better than children who are from African-American backgrounds. But it's not difficult to understand why. There's a, there's a history of discrimination. So when Obama comes to America, well, when he's addressing the 2004 Democratic Convention and he says, my father came to America, a magical place. Well, his dad came in 1959. It was a magical for African-Americans. But you can see that it would be magical if you were Kenyan. Um, yeah. You know, so African kids, they can't, you know, um, children from African countries are more likely to come. Uh, Africa has a much bigger middle class. Um, the, the way that you would migrate from Africa in the last 20, 30 years is very different from how my parents migrated as nurses and bus drivers. And anyway, not complicated, but made to look like, ha see? <laughs> can we really be can things really be like that um i said some very weird stuff about slavery which they then took back about kind of we can't just look at slavery as being you know about theft and uh and dehumanization we almost also must you know it was something very odd that they retracted about kind of celebrating something about the way that we became British or I mean it was difficult to remember for a reason um, um, yeah slavery was not just about not just about profit and suffering in the face of humanity of slavery African people preserved their humanity and culture this includes a story of slave resistance which is a it's like taking a very static notion of culture 
Well, yes, and also, well, yes, they were resisting for a reason. It's like you, one would understand that one would celebrate the resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, but you wouldn't want to say, look, we can't just tell the Holocaust as being a story about large numbers of people being massacred and there being a genocide. There was a story of resistance. It's like, well, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> not that you wouldn't want to celebrate the Warsaw Ghetto in, in the the resistance and them uh, in its way, but you'd rather that it didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but what was really stunning about it? So some of it was predictable, and it did, as you say, kind of individualized the entire thing, which is a bit like saying the whole of the last year of Black Lives Matter was all about Derek Chauvin. And now Derek Chauvin has been convicted, we're good. Because he was a bad apple in a barrel. This was about two people. Uh, Now, one of them's dead and the other one has been put away for murder. So justice has been done. Which, of course, nobody who went on those demonstrations was demonstrating about Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin was... emblematic of a broader problem, which was why the video could go viral in the first place, because it spoke to so many other examples. And of course, mm. while he's, deli- you know, while the case is going on, Duante Wright is killed, not 15 minutes, 20 minutes drive away. And less than half an hour before the verdict is delivered, the young woman in Columbus, Ohio is killed, which shows this is not just about Derek Chauvin. So anyway, they, what, they, it was about kind of, um, let's not talk about institutions, let's not talk about systems, let's not talk about institutions so much. Let's not talk about systems at all. Um, let's talk about culture and behaviour and, you know, gee, this stuff is so complicated, maybe we shouldn't talk about some of it at all. And um, But what people were really surprised at, I was surprised at, was how shabby they did it. Hmm. That... Um, what do you mean shabby? Well, that um, <laughs> quite often they would quote the first line from a report saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this up, but it was like this, you know. You cannot say that race is the sole factor in this. And they would use that line. And then the next line would say, but it is the overwhelmingly dominant factor in everything we know. And they would leave that out. And so kind of all sorts of people who they interviewed kind of, you know, came back to them and like, either I didn't say that or my work doesn't say that. Um, you can't say that. <laughs> you know, it was... Yeah, a lot of cherry picking. Well... Like just taking out the words that fit the narrative they want and not finishing the sentence of people that they, they interviewed or the reports that they're quoting from. Yeah, but it was kind of... It was worse than cherry picking. It was like they chopped down the tree and said, oh, look, I found a cherry, you know. Uh, Yeah, and they did that a lot. (laughs) So I I have some examples here. Sure, yeah, I'd like to hear hear one. They cite a study in the British Journal of Criminology, quote-unquote, suggesting that drug crime patterns change when stop and search is taking place in an area. If you look up the original study, it says the effect of stop and search is likely to be marginal at best. While there is some association between stop and search, claims that this is an effective way to control and deter offending seem misplaced. So they just took the first bit. There is some association between stop and search and crime. 
but took left the second bit out. Claims that this is an effective way to control <laughs> and deter offending seem misplaced. Deaths in police custody, they quote a report that was for the previous government, Conservative government. Racial stereotyping may or may not be a significant contributory factor in some deaths in custody. But then it omitted the very next sentence, which said, however, <laughs> unless investigatory bodies operate transparently and are seen to give all due consideration to the possibility that stereotyping may have occurred or that discrimination took place in any given case, families and communities will continue to feel that the system is stacked against them. So in other words, to find no proof of ra- find proof of racism, you must first look for it. So, and then where they kept doing it. <laughs> I think about three years ago, I interviewed Richard Spencer, uh, a very kind of, well, got a lot of publicity on television. Hmm. And I was asked about it afterwards, and I said, I, I expect a more sophistication from my racist than I got from him. That I expected him to be... Uh, for there to be more artifice and more, um, you know, sleight of hand. And it was just a very unsophisticated form of racism that he was pushing. And this was just, I expect from a commission like this, just a bit more deafness in their sophistry. And <laughs> and so it was really kind of easy for people to disparage. Now, mm. it's impossible to know if the effect of that disparagement moved widely around or whether it was Mm. a lot of people like me talking to themselves but it was unrelenting the disparagement and the number of people who there was already concern about the number of people who weren't called to who were experts in the field and weren't called to testify Mm. but then when the ones that were called and did cooperate then said well this is just nonsense then they really had a problem. But it it was severely not just criticised, but undermined by its own <laughs> hubris. But I think there was a different problem, a broader political problem. Which was? We've had this year when lots of different bodies and organisations... So when I said at the beginning, they could have written this at any time, but this isn't any time. We've had this year when... Quite a lot of black people have been emboldened. Quite a lot of white people have been conscientised. A lot of local councils have had reviews of their statues and their paintings and their public art. Lots of schools are talking about their curricula. Lots Mm. of books about race are being sold. And that this might be wishful thinking, but I think the country was going this way and they were trying to drag the conversation in a different way. And that kind of the conversations that we've been having for a year had moved up several notches and this was trying to take us down several notches. And you're not going to do that with one blow. But it did speak to, it signalled a direction that the government would like to take. Um, yeah. to, to me, that was worrying. And the other thing that it did, which I, I actually think liberals, and there are some of this in my book, um, who are we? Liberals have to take, and progressives have to take some responsibility for this. It leveraged the, no, the notion of representation to say, but these are black people and Indian people and Asian people who have done this. So they, 
it can't be that this is kind of racially problematic because look, look at the people who've done it. They're, they're black, which I think Boris Johnson has more senior non-white people in his cabinet than there's been before. Um, and so you see the limits of representation as a form of anti-racism. And, you know, I do think I remember because I can get quite gnarly about this, quite uncooperative when Obama was standing in America and my son had just been born, he was born the weekend that Obama announced and people would wow. say, this will be a really great thing for your son. And I would say, why? <laughs> you know, and I meant it, why? A black man's gonna be president. Okay, so if Condoleezza Rice was gonna be president, would you be saying that? No. Yeah. Okay, so why then, you know? And what would people say? Like, is it just because, you know, the hope of Obama would change the whole system? Well, people got kind of, you know, <laughs> there are certain things in Britain, Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, there's certain things that drive people crazy. Um, you know, they don't even want to answer for how crazy they're being. And uh, Obama drove people crazy, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But they're like, so they're kind of... Come on, it's going to be a black president. It's going to be wonderful. He's, he's not Condoleezza Rice. It's Obama. And I said, like, okay, well, why is that good for my son? Like, he has a very small chance of being president and a really big chance of going to jail in this country. So is Obama going to, do you think, limit his chances of going to jail? Because he can't really increase his chance of being president, really, can he? <laughs> And the truth is that kind of I knew what they meant, which was the power of symbolism and it's a certain kind of symbolism. But um, um, it's important to interrogate it. And if you don't, mm. then you can swap photo opportunities for equal opportunities and you can end up with something that looks different and acts the same. And that's what we got with this report is like bringing it back to something kind of urgent. And that kind of... Um, uh, and I do think that some groundwork was laid for that with a certain politics of representation um, among progressives that didn't take it that step further and say we want more women and black people in parliament who advance the interests of women and black people not the not those in power already yeah we want we want it to act differently as well as look differently yeah and that's i mean it's a it's an interesting insight. And in your book, you bring up this whole idea of the, the urging to look different while promising to behave the same as being a central thrust behind this push for diversity, right? Having different representation of people in different positions of power, supposedly, but never really changing the structures of power that that be. So I guess what is the larger issue here? Is it is it something about how we actually assign meaning to the differences that exist in, to, in society. Is that sort of, you know, one of these larger issues that, that we, instead of focusing on, on Obama as the figurehead, we should be actually thinking about how do we actually understand and assign meaning to, to differences in our society, in multicultural society? Well, how do we assign difference to it? How do we understand the power within it? And what is the connection between that symbol and substance? So kind of, um, without, to be fair, because the story I tell is one of, you know, I remember somebody writing to The Guardian and um, when when I was making points like this and saying, you're such an eel, Gary, you're so kind of like, you're such a downer. 
you know, and, um, you know, I can live with that. But it, it's, um, it, it's about taking the thought about two steps on and saying, okay, the celebration makes sense. What precisely are you celebrating? And people don't like you asking what they're celebrating while they're celebrating, right? Because it gets in the way of the <laughs> celebration. But, um, and we had it here with um, Sadiq Khan as a London mayor. And mm. a kind of, a joy which I, I, you know, I did, it's not like I didn't share in some of the joy about Obama winning. Although, you know, it was partly because, it was overwhelmingly because he was the Democrat and that meant the end of I mean, otherwise Sarah Palin was going to be vice president. That would have been <laughs> awful. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so I was, I, I mean, and the fact that he was black did have something to do with that celebration. But when people said, after, I'm really disappointed in Obama, I said, what did you think he was going to do? Mm. Because maybe it's your fault that you're, you assumed too much. So I think that kind of, um, I see my role in those moments, apart from being a party pooper, as just kind of just pushing people a little bit to say, you know, if when I said, why, why is this good for my son? If somebody, somebody had said, well, because symbols are important. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so to have uh, a black man and a child of a migrant and a child of a Muslim in this place who can't be any worse, given that two people are going to win, can't be any, one person's going to win out two, can't be any worse than the alternative, and to replace George Bush, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they kind of weren't saying that. They were saying things like, it shows that America has changed. Yeah, when in fact it has not changed that much, if at all. Well, the very moment at which they were saying it, it was changing in the other direction, because there was the economic crisis and African-Americans are losing, like the difference between black and white was actually growing even as they were saying it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really interesting insight to, to, to look beyond the sort of symbolism of individuals. So when you, I mean, so you said your son was born in Brooklyn in 20, 2007. You've recently moved back to London. How do you understand your son's position now, right? I mean, it's not America. There hasn't been a black prime minister. You know, what, what? how do you understand his identity? How do you understand his role in this new structure or, you know, potentially somewhat similar, but probably slightly different? Yeah, and I can, I, you know, I can only talk for what I see because he's 14, so he doesn't really talk to me. But, um, <laughs> but um if i i mean i can t- i have an eight-year-old daughter as well and if i talk about just both of them just having children yeah sure sure that there are a range of ways in which it's quite interestingly different i don't do better or worse in terms of like racism because they're all bad but that um um it is it is notably different um, in ways that were unexpected. So, hmm. in their primary schools, when we left America, when we left America, my son was in elementary school. He hadn't had a black teacher ever. In both hmm. of their primary schools, they have had black headmasters or headmistresses. Most of their teachers have not been white. The schools that they go to have more black kids in them than the schools that they went to in America. Now, obviously, we lived in Chicago for all of his school time, and we could have lived in the South Side 
although my wife, is, who's from Evanston, her family were from the north, you know, so we wanted to be close to her family. So there was that. But it was also true that when we looked around to the south side, a lot of the schools kind of didn't look safe and the areas didn't feel safe and um, didn't look like a place that we really were kind of keen on living in, if we're honest. Not that there aren't wonderful people and brilliant things going on there, but and so we lived in uh, um, in uptown in the north of the city, which wasn't a remotely schmancy area, but there were there aren't that many overwhelmingly black schools mm-hmm. in that bit of Chicago, and the ones that there were, we didn't like. The school that he went to was overwhelmingly Hispanic, uh, or not overwhelmingly, but I think more than half of it, half of them were. Latino so there was a black presence in the school it wasn't like we just plonked him in a kind of white school um but all of which is to say that navigating the racial dynamics of Chicago or Brooklyn he he never went to school in Brooklyn but we would talk to people about like you know it'd be nice for him to go to a school where there's a critical mass of black kids and they don't have metal you know metal detectors and kind of just that that vibe and people would say, oh, you you want to go PS4 or PS... And they would name the same two schools or three schools. And you're like, yeah, Brooklyn's a big place. And the fact that you can name two schools should tell you something, right? Um, <laughs> and um, whereas when we came here, he went to the school that we could get in because he was eight. And so the, the schools right here were kind of filled up. So it was a school that he could go to mm-hmm. pretty random it's completely random actually and my daughter goes to the school we're zoned for and um so anyway and that speaks to a range of things that aren't anything about education actually and there are well some of it is in chicago an awful lot of white kids are kind of go to kind of effectively seg academies really um mm-hmm. but here in britain we have a lot of social housing, or still we still have social housing, considerable amount of social housing, which isn't just parked out in some isolated place, which means that that ensures a certain degree of a mix, a social mix, mm-hmm. which also speaks to a racial mix. There is still a kind of broad confidence in uh, public education, it's not understood to be in crisis or onslaught. Once you go up a bit, it does get a bit more tricky. We have, they're called academies, which in America would be like charter school. And that's a problem in the way that the kids are treated. And if you look at the levels of expulsion, um, kind of all of that, you know, it's much, it's much worse. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying Britain is a nirvana. I'm just talking about my experience so far. So that that was one thing. And, you know, um, I don't worry about my kids being shot here. Yeah. You know, which is a kind of load off. It it doesn't mean there aren't other things to worry about, but I don't worry about that. It is quite amazing that in America you really do have to be concerned about that. Yeah. And that my the last book that I wrote, because Who Are We has come out in a different edition, but the last book I wrote was called Another Day in the Death of America. It was all mm-hmm. about all the kids that got shot dead in one day. Yeah. And... I just finished it and we arrived, Britain, and I went to see a friend in Derbyshire, in, he lives in the Dales, and my son would have been eight 
his kid would have been 10. We never allowed guns in the house, like toy guns, or real guns, but mm. we didn't allow him to play with toy guns. But I just meant when he went to somebody else's house and they had toy guns, he would like go straight for them and play with them because that's what he wanted to do, <laughs> so that's fair enough. So there's this moment where him and the kid who's living there go rushing out with their guns, like, you know, and they go running out. And me and my wife, my wife's African-American, and me and my wife look at each other and I'm about to run for him. And then I, I said, it's all right, actually, it's all right. Because nobody thinks it's a real gun and nobody has a gun. So yeah, yeah. when he comes back in, I'm going to tell him, like, we'll have that conversation. But he's not in any immediate danger. But that's when you realise that you've been carrying it around with you the whole time. That that is where you're... There's a bit of trauma, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of... But kind of because it's such a constant thing, mm. a bit like kind of you go to a football match and people are singing the most kind of sordid in Britain, a soccer match, and people are singing the most kind of sordid, sort of sexualized songs. And you don't think anything about it because that's what they do at a football match. So you're just mm. used to it. And there was this way in which, like, you just get used to it, and then it's kind of part of. Yeah. It becomes part of your general anxiety, like traffic, and. Um, right. And you only you only recognize it once you're not there. Yeah, yeah. Fish doesn't know it's in war until it's out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So has you know it's been quite different, and well, I realize that I've told you two ways in which kind of. England would seem better, but it's not been, my general experience hasn't been that, you know, we escaped the racism of America for a kind of great, it's just, it's just been different. And it's been different in unexpected ways. One would expect if you lived in Chicago or Brooklyn, that your kids would have a blacker experience in school than they could ever do in London. But that's not actually true because as it turns out, while, while there is more diversity in America, there is also much more segregation. So, you know, the chance of you living uh, in a kind of place that is actually diverse is actually quite limited. Yeah, I'll give an example of where, where I went to high school in America. It was in New Jersey, near Trenton, New Jersey. And it was championed as one of the most diverse schools in, you know, in the state. And it was seventy percent white, mm. and that was seen as that was seen as you know, really diverse. Yeah, and I, you know it just ble- it blows my mind, and you know, and it's just in America, it's all about how they draw the, the sort of school zones which attach to, more or less property taxes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the UK, I guess you don't necessarily have that. I mean, there's other issues in terms of how you get children into schools that I think can get rather complicated, particularly once you get into the secondary level. Once you get into secondary level, it can be complicated. At primary level, there's a school you're zoned for, mm-hmm. usually, and and, they, and the, the zoning will kind of expand if there aren't enough kids for a certain class, then they'll just move out and move mm-hmm. out. But if you, you know, where we live, the school's kind of more or less at the top of the road. And it would have been kind of, it would have been weird if she hadn't got into that school. (laughs) You walk past that school. Yeah, you would have to walk past that school in order to go to some other school. 
Um, but that's where the kind of residential segregation becomes a big and and social housing becomes a big thing because you you can have lots of different people of different incomes. Yeah. Even if the area that I'm living in is being gentrified, which it is, there is a, a limit to how fast that can go because mm-hmm. there is a significant number of people of a certain class who can live there. Yeah. I want to turn to one of the issues that seems that you seem to be very interested in is showing how there's not really neat classifications of identity. You like to find those very messy sort of gray areas, let's call them. And and in your latest radio documentary on the BBC, Thinking in Color, you you really look at this idea of passing mm. um of and and about, you know, black people who passed as white people, white people who passed as black people and you you really get into some of these more nuances and show how identity is not so, for lack of a better word, black and white. Why are you so interested in in that that sort of liminal space? What do you see in those sort of complexities? It's a good question. And if we, if we go back, um, my Obama story is partly because I like to irritate people. I like to kind of. <laughs> I I I, I kind of like to kind of get into it a bit, and that um, y- you know what do we mean by that? Um, passing has always been intriguing to me for a long time, because w- when I was growing up, I remember I remember learning about the Holocaust and about not and about Northern Ireland. It should have been ages between about ten and thirteen, and thinking I don't get it. How can anybody tell? Because to me, discrimination was about colour and what you look like. And so I was like, yeah, but why didn't, if you were Jewish, why didn't you just say I'm not Jewish? Like, they can't see you're Jewish. <laughs> you're like, this, yeah. this is a 10-year-old, 12-year-old mind working. How do they know who to kill in non knowledge? Just say I'm Protestant. Just say you're Catholic. Just like, they all look the same. Yeah. And And learning over time that like, yeah, Northern Ireland, there's three questions to do it for you. You know, what's your name? If that doesn't work, where do you live? If that doesn't work, what school did you go to? By the end of it, you'll know whether that person's going to get bullied or not, if that's what you're doing. Um, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that with Jews in... Uh, that you can't run away from your history and your history formed your culture and that kind of... Actually, it's not about what you look like exactly. Anyway, you know, probably took years to get to the end of that thought, but that... I was intrigued by uh, by that. So then passing really kind of, you know, is a, is at the sharp end of that, right? Well, it's kind of... Um, and even of the things that we were talking about before, about looking different and acting the same, that kind of, well, what makes you black? Mm-hmm. Is it the colour of your skin? Or is there something more than that? You know, is there a way of being black where you don't look black? And... And I find, I actually did a talk about the the margins and the mainstream once for uh, the British uh, British Museum, I think, or the V&A, so the Victorian Albert Museum. And it was about how the borders define what's inside. So actually kind of being real clear about the borders is quite important because 
<laughs> partly because the borders, if we think of countries, that's where the conflicts are, usually. And the borders define who's in and who's out. And that those definitions are often accepted without, usually accepted by people because they don't want to be as irritating as I am or can be without kind of a huge amount of probing until they're tested. So in that talk, I, I gave the, uh, the story of, I said, this is a story of two white girls. And it was Sandra Lang, who's South African, born to two white Africana parents who were faithful to each other. As far as anyone can know anything, they were faithful to each other. And she comes out dark and she's reclassified between white and colored like three or four times. And Bliss Broyard, who's born to uh, Anatoly Broyard and grows up in Blue Blood, Connecticut, um, uh, to uh, what she assumes is two white parents. And then on his deathbed, she finds out that her dad has been passing. And then she sort of re-examines, you know, what, what does that mean for me? And what did it mean mm. for him? And, you know, when I used to teach at Brooklyn College, I would say... So which one of these girls is black and which one's white? And what would your students say? Are they both black or are they both white? Actually, quite often, <laughs> they <laughs> they would hover around the like that woman's that woman's man was that woman was messing around. <laughs> that wasn't her child, and you're like, just if you could just keep it together for a second, then maybe she <laughs> wasn't doing that. Let's just, yeah, she'd look at, you know. So there was a lot of that. What do you think? Well, I mean, what they would do is kind of, the discussion would kind of evolve. So they'd be like, you know, with some prodding and some problems, there was, they would look at Sandra Lang and have the pictures. And they would say, well, there's no way you can say she's, she's white. And then I would say to them, but isn't someone with two white parents white? Like, if you were born white and both your parents were black, mm. wouldn't that, aren't you still, wouldn't, you know, how how does that happen? With Bliss Broyard, it was more like, she's a white girl. That that was more the kind of vibe that she's a white girl. Her daddy had a bit, little bit of colour, but he wasn't doing much with it she mm -hmm. could kind of get back into it if she wanted, you know, but, you, you know, but she would have to do the work. Um, yeah, right. And my feeling was that they were both and that they were both, um, they were both black and white and that kind of, um, uh, and that in different ways they challenged the borders, which are kind of always much more porous than we claim. There were, I had an interesting one the other day this wasn't about race, but it was about definition with um, my daughter's best friend. Uh, her mum is Spanish and her dad is Polish. Both my daughter and my son were born in America. And I went to pick her up from her friend's house and her mum had a <laughs> this really cool T-shirt that I want to get called, and it just says, immigrant on it. Which in Britain at this moment is just like, it, it's a statement. You know, it's like you want yeah, yeah. you want a piece of me, and um, and I said to her, "Oh, I, I really like your t-shirt. Uh, I think I'm gonna get it for 
the rest of my family, you know, Fazora and my wife and my son, all of whom were born in America. And she, and she said, and my wife kind of backed her up on this. So I had, you know, I was, I was able to be irritating twice within about like <laughs> 20 minutes. Zora's not an immigrant. And I said, she absolutely is an immigrant. She came here when she was two. That's the yeah. definition of an immigrant. And she said, yeah, but she's been here since she was two. This is the only country that she knows. And I'm like, uh, and she has British citizenship. And I said, there's nothing that says you can't be an immigrant and have British citizenship. Like my mum mm, yeah. lived here for longer than she ever lived in Barbados. And she was an immigrant. I said, otherwise, how comes if I say I'm the son of an immigrant, you never challenge me? And they're like, okay. Yeah, right. So, okay. And then I'm like, and, and um, Zora's friend's mom said, but you're here, you're part of the community. And I said, but you're here, you're part of the community. Your kid goes to the, to the school, you're yeah. a nurse, you kind of, and um, uh, and both of them, it, it was like, that is not how I, that is not my accepted definition of immigrant, which is fine. And kind of like, but I kind of held out, kind of like, nah, like all of you, you're all immigrants, apart from your daughter. She's not because you had her here. So she can't wear, even though her daughter's bilingual yeah. uh, and has got a Polish and a, and every holiday she's going to Poland or Spain. Uh, and we go to America maybe once every couple of years. And but, but it's like your daughter is the only person in this conversation. Me and your daughter are the only people in this conversation who can't wear that T-shirt. Um, um, which I do think that those conversations are useful, actually. I mean, not always when That's I funny. conduct them in that way, but that the, the, the definitions matter and the... Um, and the, the, I could give a, a couple of really good examples where it's not, where it becomes very material. So mm. um, during my upbringing, we had to fight our way into a definition of British because the definition of British did not include blackness. So people would say, where are you from? No, but where are you really from? You know, yeah. and that was like you find your way. One guy in Scotland said, where are you from? Stevenage. Where were you born? Hitchin. Well, before then. Yeah, right. You could never have been from the UK. Yeah, you could never be British. And I was on uh, an NPR program after Le Pen came second in the French presidential elections in 2002. Mm -hmm. And everyone was shocked. That was normal. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, not Marie Le Pen. So her dad. And I was in a discussion and there was this French woman, quite right wing, like Le Figaro or something. Conservative, not not for national. And she kept talking about, I, I made the point that Jacques Chirac actually had said some really racist things. He had complained about the noise and the smell of immigrants and so on. And so there was a lineage and she lost her shit and was talking about, like, Jack Chirac's not a racist and this and that. How dare you say that? And I said, I didn't say he was. I said he said some racist stuff. And then she started talking about les immigrés, immigrants. And I said, 
Are you talking about immigrants? Are you talking about people who aren't white? And she mm. was like really offended, really. And she said, um, you know what I mean. And I said, I fear I do. But I fear that the listeners don't. And I, I fear that you're not kind of fully aware of the consequences of what mm. you're saying. And... Um, uh, it wasn't a question that she was like prepared to answer properly, but um, they're two quite important uh, examples of how um, the definition matters. Or after nine eleven, when there was a very big thrust, not only from conservatives, also among liberals, f uh, against multiculturalism and particularly Muslim influence. Mm. And people would insist that, like, Britain is a secular country. And I would say, absolutely not. It is, you are completely wrong. It's not a secular country. We have an established church. We have bishops in the House of Lords. The Queen is the head of the church, and she's the head of state. It's the same person. So that is absolutely wrong. And once again, they would say, you know what I mean. And I'd say, you don't know what you mean. I know what you mean, but you don't. And what you mean is that these people aren't part of our country and that these people can't fit in, but that's what you've done is given a misidentification. It's true that we are kind of culturally very secular. But you could also say, I said America is institutionally secular and far more religious. Yeah. So you're yeah. going to need to be a bit, more sophisticated about what you're saying in order to make your point because in the in the in that sophistication resides an awful lot of these people yeah that you're talking about who were drinking beer and eating bacon one day before and then the next day found out that they were muslim in a certain way that hadn't actually kind of kind of um uh mattered to them and an awful lot of people who were asian the day before and now became muslim and that kind of and, and a religion that kind of you don't know much about but have decided to take these things and oppose it to secularity mm. when actually in a lot of ways we are closer to iran than america in terms of our kind of constitution or lack of constitution so kind of you know you're gonna have to like let you're gonna have to sit with that and I think I think some of my insistence on these definitions is because as someone who's black and British and grew up working class and travelled into the middle class and was a child of an immigrant, I found myself on the borders of an awful lot of them. People talking about black people or working class people or middle class people or kind of um, uh, or in in ways that were like yeah you're kind of you're talking about me oh I don't mean you and it's like well you know cat fits. So as a final question, in your book you talk about the Greek philosopher Heraclitus and you talk about how you can't cross the same river twice because the river is different and you are different. Now that you've come back to the UK, come back to London, how are you different after living away for so long? That's a good question. I'm quite different, I think. Uh, I mean, there are obvious ways. I'm older. And that, I mean, 
that sounds trite, but it actually had an impact hmm. in terms hmm. of, um, you know, I I was back at the Guardian for I'm now a professor at the University of Manchester, but I came back to the Guardian. When I left there, I was you know, thirty five, something like that. Hmm. No, thirty three. But I come back as kind of older, more senior. So actually, and a man. So there's a, this is before me too. It's not like I've done anything awful, but I was very aware. You know what? You're going to have to watch the kind of jokes you tell. And some of those things that you might have done, which, like like I said, there was never, there was never a problem. I'm sounding really dodgy here, but like where you might have thrown your arm around someone or given someone a big hug or kind of, uh, made some kind of off-color joke. I don't think th- that works now. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's and in meetings you have to shut up. Um, th- th- you're black, but there's no barrier to you talking in these meetings. You're a senior person in this institution, and you're kind of um, you can speak when you want. Other people, can't. so th- that was one way in which I was different. Mm. Um, my sense of distance is different. <laughs> Having been in America and flown around and kind of um, a four-hour drive in America is not so onerous, right? Kind of, you know, four and a half hours, you can be from London to Edinburgh in a train. So kind of um, when I think of uh, going to Liverpool by train or something, why not, you know, a couple of beers and some kind of mango fingers and we'll kind of make a make an afternoon of it i mean it's um so my sense of distance is different hmm. um when i left england i didn't have kids and uh you know arguably that is the biggest difference um that kind of um you know people will talk about new i mean lockdown has eased off here hmm. i haven't really changed my life that much to be honest because I wasn't going out anyway. So kind of uh, new restaurants, new bars, new this, new that. Coming back to the age thing, I start. I've, I started to think about not legacy, absolutely not. That would be kind of pompous, but kind of um, beyond what I was saying before about how I relate to younger people, how I encourage people mm-hmm. or discourage people and kind of just what, my general role might be in somebody's life or career or whatever that was not the case when I was 33. Like, how do you encourage people? What is your... Um, That's about age, though, too. Uh, I mean, I came back at a different stage of my career. It's not just about age, that, but the kind of... um, I, I was kind of mostly cured of the travel bug. Like, I... Yeah, I think I overnighted in 46 states in America in my 12 years. There were a few that I didn't get to. Oh, my gosh. But oh I gosh. saw a lot of America that most Americans don't see. I haven't been to that many states. Um, here's, a, here's quite a good personal example of how I was different. And it relates to the age thing and the distance thing, which feel at the moment like the biggest things, I'm not quite sure. And the kid thing, which is actually the biggest thing, which was um, we were going down to see my brother had hired a place in Spain, I'm going to say. And uh, it was Spain. And we were going to go down there. And, And my original response was, 
to look up flights. And I thought, no, 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 no. We can take the train. Hmm. Which in America, I would just never think of taking a train. I mean, beyond certain specific kind of routes, mostly coastal, or like between Chicago and Detroit, the kind of aren't, the trains aren't really that useful. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I can kind of introduce my kids to kind of Europe, you know, which yeah. um, mm. was also, a, you know, a weird idea. And so we, uh, and I felt a bit like a tourist. I did, not just because of my kids, but we, we got the train to Paris and then we got a train to Zurich, stayed for a couple of days, got a train to Zurich, stayed for a couple of days, then got a train over the um, Alps, a special kind of train. Wow, wow. It's a touristy train. And there was a realisation that actually kind of, I think my intentions were pure, but also sort of slightly ridiculous. The kids weren't that bothered, actually, you know. There was no Wi-Fi in the Alps train, you know, so it was like, how am I going to play my game, Dad? This is just kind of rubbish, really. And you'd be like, look, 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 and I'd be like, yeah, we get it. There are mountains, thank you. Now about about that Wi-Fi. But but that for me, it was, um, yeah, this was something I, it was to Italy we were going, we were going to Tuscany. But this was something I, I, I really wanted to do, and I was prepared to inconvenience my... More than once, my son said, why don't we just fly? And I'd be like, because then we wouldn't have seen... And he was like, okay. Um, I've done it since, which gets back to me being kind of quite irritating when I get my mind to it. But I really... Um, I don't think I would have done that if I hadn't been in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you are back in the UK and can re-engage with Europe in new ways and give us give a small show like Fresh Ed some of your your time I really do appreciate you coming on the show today and, and talking about all sorts of things so Gary Young thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and you know it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today thanks so much for having me I've had fun Gary Young is a professor at the University of Manchester. The second edition of Who Are We? and Should It Matter in the 21st Century was recently republished by Penguin Books. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Oba Femi Ungunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afro-Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>